0: This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colagard. Learn more at exactsciences.com.
1: Welcome to On the Cover, a weekly Mad Splainers feature. I'm podcast producer Natalie Yar, and each week, I sit down with the reporter behind our latest cover story to find out why it matters. When protests broke out across the country this summer in response to the police killing of George Floyd, some argued that the way police responded to the protests only made things worse. In this week's cover story... Reporter Clara Nypert explores what we know about how policing can change protest and how Madison, at least at one point, offered what seemed like a better way. Clara is a reporting fellow with Wisconsin Watch, a nonprofit investigative news outlet that lets outlets like the Cap Times publish its work for free. Welcome to the podcast, Clara. Hello. Glad to have you here. So, Madison is no stranger to rowdy crowds between protests, rallies, and badger tailgates. We've definitely got some practice. But that also means that Madison police have a lot of experience responding to big crowds. How has the way Madison police deal with these situations changed over time?
0: Well, I think that the protests during the Vietnam War era really is what put Madison on the policing map. Um, Where my story starts, where I start reporting, was the Mifflin Street Block Party, which is still around today, actually, but it it started in 1969 as a protest against the Vietnam War. So in 1969, that year, officers showed up to the party in riot gear um, because of noise complaints and then just started arresting people for minor infractions. And then um, the crowd saw these officers in riot gear and started throwing rocks at them. So things escalated from there. Um, the Monday edition of the Capitol Times actually reported that the police raided homes and launched tear gas canisters and rammed barricades with squad cars. So it got, it escalated. <laughs> the next year, uh, the violence only got worse from there. Sterling Hall on UW's campus was bombed, and the riot squad used tear gas to control Mifflin's block party in 1971. Um, But then David Cooper was hired as police chief. Um, he was 35 and he came from Minnesota, so he was a bit of an outsider to the scene, um, but he was very prepared. He had been reading about Madison. Um, they'd made the national news. Um, and so he knew what was happening in Madison, and he had tons of ideas about what he wanted to do differently. And the Mifflin Street Block Party was actually the first time that he had a chance to put these ideas to practice. So in 1973, he, the, the block party was issued their permits. And instead of riot gear, he had his officers dress in blazers and ditched their police caps. And they, they showed up to the party. They kind of kept their distance, um, directed traffic, but also like greeted people, started to build that community relationship that is really key in David Cooper's idea of policing. Um, they made small talk with the partygoers instead of arresting them. And then the Wisconsin State Journal then published an article in their Sunday paper that described a pretty chill party as opposed to like a riot so there's music dancing and frisbees so a much
1: different scene and what made chief cooper want to take such a different tack back in 73
0: well i'd say that david cooper is someone who is always learning and looking for new or better ways to do things that's just when i interviewed him that's just part of his character Um, He came into the role as police chief with so many experiences under his belt, um, even at 35, relatively young. He began his career actually in the Marines, and then he moved to Minneapolis where he studied at the U of M and at nights picked up shifts as a patrol officer. And when I talked with him, uh, that really seemed like his formative years as a police officer. Uh, That's where he got that value of building community trust. He told me, you know, I'd, I'd walk up to people, I'd knock on their doors and talk to them about what was happening in their neighborhoods. And, you know, they'd have conversations, they'd know who he is, and then when they had a problem, they'd be able to tell them, him. So he told me that when he moved to Madison, he knew about the distrust in the community and he really, really wanted to change that.
1: And what does research say about how policing changes the trajectory of a protest?
0: well simply time and time again the research that i've read says that using an aggressive um, military-like style only escalates violence during a protest while writing the piece i really um, thought about it on a smaller scale you know like if you're upset and someone says something way out of line it's only going to get you more upset anyway um President Lyndon Johnson established a commission called the Kerner Commission in 1967. And, like, one of the things that they found was that uh, police departments should, quote, eliminate abrasive practices to institute fair and effective mechanisms for the redress of grievances against the police. So basically, this sentiment was echoed again and again in 1969 and 1970, and today, I feel we're still seeing those similar call to actions. So, you know, meet with the community and don't don't have such aggressive approaches to protests.
1: Right. And here in Wisconsin, you know, protests swept through Wisconsin again this year following the killing of George Floyd in May by Minneapolis police and the shooting of Jacob Blake, who was paralyzed by Kenosha police in August. Can you tell me about the sort of police response we saw in Madison and how it changed over the course of the weeks of protest?
0: Madison had a varied police response. um, And I think what we saw in Madison is a good example of how politics can come into play in all of this in in late may at the start of the george floyd protests in madison uh, police responded quite aggressively Um, they dressed in riot gear and fired tear gas and pepper spray and sponge projectile rounds to like disperse the crowd on state street police say that they only did that after the property was damaged um but after that tear gas was fired uh when i spoke with david cooper he said that community trust in police eroded a little bit when that happened and i think that the madison community was kind of taken aback by this action so in return the Madison police stepped back from the protests and we saw several weeks of um, peaceful marches. But conservative state lawmakers were still calling on the mayor and um, acting police chief, Vic Wall, uh, to do more. And then in late June, when some protesters started to destruct property, uh, like the statues, and one state senator was assaulted, that's when police again used pepper spray um, also, to stop a break in of the capitol, so it was it was back and forth,
1: yeah, and does Madison's police department say it's still following this uh, model that Chief Cooper created, what some people call the Madison model?
0: Yes, uh, acting police Chief Wall says that they do. Um, he told me that his department communicated with protesters ahead of the many marches throughout the summer, um, including the ones that blocked traffic on major, major roads. And that that is one big tenant of the Madison model is communication between police and protesters. But when I asked David Cooper this same question when I interviewed him over the summer, he said that they've drifted away from the Madison model. So it depends.
1: Yeah. And then. In August, tell me about how Kenosha police responded to protests over the killing of Jacob Blake. What did we see there?
0: Well, Kenosha is very, very different from Madison. Um, I spoke with an expert who told me that the city is just very segregated and the bank of trust between the community and the police is essentially empty. And so I, I couldn't be at the Kenosha protests in person. So I watched live streams of the event to do my reporting.
1: Rundown Live, rundonlive.com. heres here is here. I'm in Kenosha. We've got police lines, it looks like, where the murder happened.
0: But what I got from watching that footage was just fear. I guess on both sides during the protests. The community was deeply hurt. People were like crying and asking officers questions and not really getting answers. They shot that man for no reason. You think that's right? You think it's right? You got a family at home, don't you? Don't you feel home? And so the police geared up pretty quickly into the night. Um that means they put on like face shields, um, like helmets, a uniform uh, with a baton. A police officer just got bricked.
1: I'm over here.
0: There just wasn't, there didn't seem to be any communication between the protesters and the police. Get back! back. Get back! Move! Move back, sir! Move back! Move back! Move back! Move back. Move back. Move back. Around like nine thirty, the first night of the protests in late August, residents saw bear cats roll into the neighborhood, and bearcats are like huge like think of a Jeep, but like with more armor and it looks like like it is a military vehicle, so um a green big jeep with armor on it, roll into the neighborhood. Um and I heard in live stream like that was pretty frightening to some. Um and in turn, police cars got smashed. Um, and um, at one point, the protest kind of shifted toward downtown Kenosha. Um, the police left the neighborhood where Jacob Blake had been shot, which is where the protest started. Um, and things kind of calmed down there. Um, once the police left, the live streamer that I was watching said, oh, things are, things are calming down. Um, but uh, to be fair, the protest then shifted toward the courthouse in downtown Kenosha. Um, and then later that night, uh, at that courthouse by like 11 PM, um, tear gas and rubber bullets were used.
1: Got it. And while police cracked down on protesters in Kenosha, they seemed to invite the white vigilantes who showed up with guns and they didn't arrest Kyle Rittenhouse after he shot three protesters, even though he walked by them with his hands up. What might that tell us about what it means to promote safety at protests?
0: Well, I think this is really, I think, part of an ongoing question that we've seen. Um, One of the questions is, you know, protecting property versus human life. And I've heard of this in You know, as I'm following up with this report, as I'm continuing this social justice policing beat, I hear that question a lot. Like, what, who or what is our law enforcement serving and protecting um, property or people? So, as I mentioned, I'm working on another story about um, curfews during protests. And it really, it really all falls along the same vein of protest, policing, and human safety during protests. This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs.
1: And you spoke to policing experts about Kenosha Did they think the Madison model would have reduced the violence and property destruction there?
0: Well, I asked two experts that question, um, one of whom was David Cooper and the other um, a professor named uh, Celica Duxworth Lawton at UW Eau Claire. And both said that the Madison model or something like that would not have worked. um, Because what the Madison model needs to function is a trust between the community and the police department. And um, they both thought that that's not something that was existing in Kenosha. There isn't a bank of trust there. And um, Ducksworth Lawton told me that what happened in Kenosha didn't surprise her because um, she thought those events were a long time coming because of things that happened in the past, things that Kenosha police chiefs have said in the past. And she said it's hard to build trust after you see something like an officer shoot one of your neighbors in the back. Yeah.
1: Now, former Chief Cooper is no longer in policing. What's he up to these days?
0: Well, I know this is a pretty old term, but I would call uh, Cooper a Renaissance man. He really does everything. He's a priest, he's a poet, he upkeeps a blog, he writes books, he practices, Karate. He's been skydiving. He's giving himself pretty busy, but he's also still really involved in the community and still like deeply cares about about these issues.
1: And you said he's he's been keeping a blog about policing. How does he think Madison is doing when it comes to building trust within the community these days?
0: Well, he does think that trust has been eroded, especially when he saw tear gas used. Um, he he knew that would deeply hurt the community, and he also brought up um, um, MPD's participation in the 1033 program. And briefly, what the 1033 program is, um, it's a program where um, the DHS, the Department of Homeland Security provides um, sometimes military equipment, other times like gear, like tables or computers or face masks to departments across the nation. Um, an MPD started participating in that program after he was chief and he said that program really erodes trust in the community as well um going along the lines of um that when, when police gear up when police have more military style weapons um it erodes trust it looks scarier to the community so he does think that they have a long way to go um not only Madison police but police is an institution in general, but he also has hope.
1: And you report that the summer protests and the police response to them have renewed local debates about these crowd control questions. We've seen some local elected officials say the police were heavy handed and others criticize police for seeming to stand down as protesters removed statues or in isolated incidents hurt bystanders. What are you watching for next in this story?
0: As I was writing this story, um, it took a really long time to write because I had to keep updating it. Uh, I kept seeing the same things happen again and again. So George Floyd and the police's response in Madison and then Kenosha. And then we could have talked about Wauwatosa in the story as well. My point is, is that the same things have happened and will keep happening when it comes to protest policing. I mean, look at all the way back in the 1960s. Um, the civil rights movement that happened then, um, you know, saw militarized approaches to policing. And we're seeing the same thing, you know, however many years later. So in a depressing way, I do expect to see the same things happen when it comes to protest policing. Now, that being said, um, today there have been lawsuits that have been filed against police, um, that I'm watching one being um, the civil suit in Kenosha that was filed for unequal enforcement of curfew. Um, Curfew is one way that is is a method of protest policing. Um, And I'm also watching politics at a local level. Um, The Madison Common Council had a couple pieces of legislation that addressed um, policing and the 1033 program and the use of tear gas. And I think we're going to keep seeing those conversations happen at a local level maybe even more so than a national level for the time being. At the end of the inter- my interview with him, David Cooper said to me, um, things have got to change. And I think that's, I think we're going to keep seeing these conversations. And I think they're going to be uncomfortable and emotional and bring up communities' traumas. But I also think that they're really necessary. Clara,
1: thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Wisconsin Watch reporting fellow Clara Nightbird. Tune in next week for a conversation about our next cover story. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to the Mad MadSplainers on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you do your listening, and leave us a review while you're there. Also, be sure to check out other podcasts, including The Corner Table, all about food and drink in Madison, and Wedge Issues, all about state politics. Until next time, thanks for listening.